If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news show. <laughs> out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Miss Barbecue. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Steve Pride. Tonight we welcome live in the studio Daniel Franzizi. Franzese. <laughs> yes, who played Eddie, the HIV-positive bear in HBO's Looking, as well as Damien in Mean Girls. And I talk with Kate Kendall, the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And I chat with Robbie Rogers, Olympic athlete, fashionista, and an openly gay professional soccer player, now with the LA Galaxy. Plus, we'll talk with a straight ally in Indiana who quit his gig with the Indiana Tourism Bureau to protest the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration. Act. Mm-hmm. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. And I'm Carol Myers. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending March 28, 2015. Eleven U.S. Senate Republicans joined with all the chamber's Democrats on March 26th to support an amendment to guarantee equal Social Security and veterans' benefits to married same-gender couples even if they live in a state that doesn't recognize such marriages. BuzzFeed's Chris Geidner noted that the vote was one of many non-binding Senate resolutions on a broad range of hot-button issues for a budget that might not even pass the upper chamber. Nonetheless, Geidner writes, the vote gives rare insight into the potential changes going on within the Republican Party on the marriage issue, in advance of the coming Supreme Court decision widely expected to hold that bans on same-sex couples' marriages are unconstitutional. Six of the 11 Republicans voting for the measure are up for re-election in 2016. But claiming that many people of faith feel their religious liberty is under attack by government action, Indiana's Republican Governor Mike Pence signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act into law in a private ceremony on March 26. Opponents say it should be called the License to Discriminate Act because it allows individuals, organizations, and businesses to deny service to anyone whose presence offends their sincerely held religious beliefs. It clearly targets LGBT people, but the measure is so vaguely worded that it could also allow Christians, Muslims, Jews, and followers of other faiths to discriminate against atheists or against one another. Several major businesses and organizations across Indiana had vocally opposed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, including the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce and the city's Republican mayor, Greg Ballard. The bill was signed about 10 days before the National Collegiate Athletic Association's Division I Men's Final Four Basketball Tournament is held in downtown Indianapolis. We are examining the details of this bill, the Indianapolis-based NCAA said in a media statement. 
However, it noted, the NCAA National Office is committed to an inclusive environment where all individuals enjoy equal access to events. Salesforce is a $4 billion tech company based in San Francisco that increased its presence in Indiana in 2013. CEO Mike Benioff said after the bill was signed that he was canceling all company programs that required employees or customers to travel to Indiana and encouraged other tech companies to follow suit. San Francisco Mayor Edwin Lee may have been the first, but he'll probably not be the last, to ban any publicly funded city employee travel to the state. The leadership of the Disciples of Christ, with about 3,600 congregations and more than 630,000 members across North America, said it was reviewing the denomination's plans to hold their 2017 General Assembly in the state of Indiana. The church's biennial convention is estimated to generate about $6 million in revenue to the state. Organizers of Gen Con, the world's largest gaming conference, had threatened to relocate their annual conference and its estimated $50 million if the bill became law. Many activists and celebrities are joining out actor George Takei's calls to boycott Indiana. I will join many in demanding that socially responsible companies withdraw their business, conferences, and support from the state, he wrote in a Facebook post, and that LGBTs and our friends and supporters refuse to visit or do business with Indiana. And the campaign of a small website originally created to help Indianapolis businesses market their openness to all customers has spread like wildfire, according to the Chicago Tribune. The official window stickers and badges available at openforservice.org say, We serve everyone. And they're popping up in businesses not only across Indiana, says the Tribune, but in 23 states and several major cities, including New York and Los Angeles. Copycat religious freedom bills are now circulating in more than a dozen other U.S. states. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson says he wants his state to be next. Mississippi has already passed its own religious freedom law, and the one that passed in Indiana is substantially similar to a bill in Arizona that was vetoed last year by then-Governor Jan Brewer, also a socially conservative Republican, amid a national outcry. And finally, believe it or not, there's a proposed ballot initiative in California called the Sodomite Suppression Act that would mandate death by bullets to the head or any other convenient method for any person who willingly touches another person of the same gender for the purposes of sexual gratification. It's unlikely to get the more than 365,000 signatures of registered voters required to qualify for the ballot. But activist Charlotte Laws has already filed a proposed ballot initiative called the Intolerant Jackass Act that would require the author of the Suppression Act and any similar measures to spend at least three hours a month for 12 consecutive months attending sensitivity training sessions. That's News Wrap for the week ending March 28, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. And I'm Carol Myers. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news wrap on Stitcher Radio On Demand, on iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. Last Thursday, a straight man named Eric Decker quit his job as a travel writer for the Indiana Office of Tourism Development shortly after Governor Mike Pence signed a bill legalizing discrimination against LGBT people. Eric Decker joins us via phone from his home in Indianapolis, Indiana. Eric? You here? Yeah, I am. Eric, thanks for joining us tonight. All the way from Indiana. That's like another country almost. <laughs> hi, hi, Mr. Deckers. 
Hi, how are you? Good, <laughs> thanks. Well, listen, just to get right into it, what prompted you to pop the hatch and jump down the emergency slide, so to speak? Well, I've been a, a travel writer, and, and this is a part-time job, uh, but I was a travel writer with the state for six years and, uh, you know, would write about different attractions and events and things going on throughout the state in order to get people to come visit us. But after uh, I, I was paying attention as the bill was making its way through the legislature, and when I saw that uh, Governor Pence had, in fact, signed it, I decided I couldn't invite people to the state anymore. Uh, it just it wasn't going to be fair if some of them weren't welcome. Uh, so I emailed the Indiana Office of Tourism Development and told them why I was stepping down, and they were very understanding. And then I wrote a blog post about this and, and uh, put it on Twitter and Facebook and didn't think it much would happen, but it went viral very quickly. So it was not anything against the agency themselves. They're wonderful people, but I could not take money from a state government that was actively seeking to keep out people I was trying to invite. Do you think that this reaction that we're seeing, and this is getting a lot of publicity, and like what you did is such a wonderful act of being an ally, mm-hmm. um, is there something unique about Indiana that this is happening? We've, got, we've seen similar things in other states, but nothing quite like this. I, I think part of the problem that Indiana has with the bill and the reason that it's, it's got people up in arms is we don't have any anti-discrimination laws. Right. Mm-hmm. People who are protected cannot be discriminated against uh, by this bill. But if you're not protected, you're absolutely open to discrimination. And, I, and a lot of people say, well, these other 19 states also have the bill, but many of those other states also have anti-discrimination laws. And right. so I think this is the timing of this, because it came on the uh, the heels of the same-sex marriage ban defeat last year, mm-hmm. and just the kind of outspokenness of anti-LGBT rhetoric, this all just happened to be a perfect storm of opportunity for both sides to make a lot of noise. Do you still feel good about this choice? That's a big choice. I do. Yeah. I, do. I, don't, I don't feel bad about it one bit. I feel bad that the boycott is being called for because there are a lot of good people in Indiana. You know, we have 7 million people in the state, and millions and millions of people here do not think this. And, you know, and these are good people with good hearts, and they, they want to do right by everybody. Our own mayor, our own Republican mayor in Indianapolis, uh, and the city council have called on the Indiana legislature to repeal this law, and they're even signing an executive order for anti-discrimination laws. Eric, what kind of feedback have you gotten from other people about your actions? Mostly positive. I would say 95% positive, partly because I don't, <laughs> I don't have friends who would say negative things to me. <laughs> I've had a couple people ask questions, but we've had good discussions. But everybody else has been very supportive, saying thank you very much. I appreciate you doing this. And, uh, and it's all been very positive. Sir, have you had any other LGBT organizations reach out to you as well? Well, I was in the Advocate magazine on yeah. Friday, uh-huh. uh, and then there were some reprints of uh, Bolerico Project, and, and Bill Browning uh, is a good friend of mine. He told the story on Bolerico.com. Uh, I was just interviewed by the Toronto Globe and Mail today. So I've gotten a lot of good support from the media, uh, both from the gay and the mainstream media. So that's also been positive. Very quickly, what's next for you? I still have a job. 
great. <laughs> I, I keep working. Every day I get up, I go to work, and I own my own social media marketing agency. I still have clients who uh, who still like me and still like what I do, and so I keep doing that. Well, shoot, I might have to hire you. <laughs> I might have to hire you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah awesome. Eric, so, I, pardon? I was going to say, I'm hoping to get back into travel writing eventually because I still enjoy that, and I, I kind of miss it already. But I want to wait and see what settles out of this and and see where my talents are needed. Absolutely. Eric, I wish we had more time, but thank you so much, Eric Deckers, for talking to us from Indianapolis, Indiana. And you can follow Eric on Bolerico Project, bolerico.com. And we're very interested to see what happens to you and what happens in Indiana. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Eric. Well, our next guest is a little bit closer <laughs> Close enough to touch, but you We're know, not. I, are not. Oh, after the Cheyenne Jackson incident last year, I am no longer allowed to touch anyone in the studio. <laughs> Restraining order. <laughs> so while we hold Steve down, Danielle Francesi played Eddie, an HIV positive bear running a shelter for homeless LGBT kids on the HBO show Looking, which is getting great reviews. Oh, and unfortunately, has been canceled, but we'll talk about what's next for that because there's something more coming. But you also played Damien, a character. In Mean Girls, I think my favorite character in Mean Girls, and in real life, dude, you are totally fetch. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to the studio, Daniel. I'm happy to be here. You want me to speak go back? <laughs> yeah, we do. Where did we meet? I think we met at Akbar? Oh, I know, one of those places. One, one of those places and stuff. One of the haunts. And you're, you're working on your Jersey Shoresicle? That's right, yes. I had a musical with Hannah Lopatin, the Jersey Shoresicle, a freaking rock opera. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning because I'm sticking a gay vibe from you. From me? Just a little bit. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, that's pretty close. You're pretty spot on. <laughs> but when you played Damien, you were not out. I wasn't, no. Why that decision? There was just a lot of pressure. I was actually out before that working in gay bars as a bouncer and, you know, just about anything you could do in a bar except for bartend. And then when I booked that movie, you know, um, a lot of my representation and people close to me all thought that that would pigeonhole me into one area. So they suggested I go back in the closet. Um, Really? Because it was my first time really in the public eye. I mean, I had made other movies like Larry Clark's Bully and Party Monster and stuff, but nothing that put me that large in the forefront. So they wanted me to hide. And I did. I I complied, which I sincerely regret. But I think at the time that Mean Girls was made, it was a different time. And, you know, it was a time of gay exploitation where, as we were seeing LGBT people appear on television and in movies, it was very exploitative. And they were, you know, used as the butt of a joke and whatnot. Exactly. So, I mean, I think it was fear for that. And I think that that is something that gay or straight, I was experiencing after Mean Girls. A lot of the roles that I was being offered or that were being put across my desk were stuff where LGBT people were being played for laughs or, you know, as the joke, you know, the feather boa wielding castrated sidekicks. And I just wasn't something that I wanted to do. I felt that Damien was an extremely progressive role. I mean, I had never seen a chubby gay kid on screen be celebrated and not be made fun of. So it was something that I knew was pushing the envelope of gay exploitation forward. And I always saw my closeted experience as being sort of like a secret ally because I was gay. I was like, I'm going to do this and then one day figure out a way to come out and maybe I'll play tons of straight roles and all this stuff would happen. But I felt very much like I was hitting the gay glass ceiling in Hollywood. 
and uh, being very limited by casting directors and agents and stuff. Well, the, the, the film and the role made your career. It also damaged your career then. Yeah. yeah, I had a bit of an issue. I mean, you know, I've always historically in my career, both in theater and on film, had been going out for and whether I played the role or not or I got really close to it. Um, I was always playing, you know, blue collar, tough guys and things like that. And then once I did that, I wasn't even allowed to read for those parts, which I felt was very discriminatory. Um, I was reaching an area where they weren't even allowing me to audition for certain roles. And I felt like that was the real catalyst for my anger is that I wasn't even given the opportunity to just try for some of the things that I knew that I was right for. Well, well after Mean Girls, you started, didn't you start writing your own stuff and, and started uh, producing your own stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, well, that's when I got frustrated. I yeah. just was like, you know, it's time to make my own things. They tell you from the beginning um, as an actor to sort of create your own things. And, create and, your own art, yeah. And, and, and make your own way. But a lot of times as a beginner, you don't really feel the confidence or the know-how to do something like that. But I, I started doing it without that anyway. Um, I partnered myself with a lot of brilliant people, and they helped me along. I mean, Hannah Lopatin was instrumental in helping me write the musical also. Did finally coming out sort of ironically free you up from some of those constraints that you felt uh, around yeah, the pigeonholing? At this point, I didn't care anymore. Um, I had reached a place where I had uh, cleaned my representation. I had no representation. I just was like, everybody's gone. I'm going to do my own thing. And I yeah. started working on this project in Detroit and other projects on my own, which were all becoming successful. I mean, I did a my first YouTube video. It was at 4 million views. And then, you know, I, I, I directed a short and it won two film festivals. And I co-wrote the musical and we, we won awards at the New York Fringe Festival. And I just was like, well, I'm going to continue to make my own art. And I think that's when I really started to get noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about my favorite show. Um, my favorite movie is Weekend. Yes. Andrew Hayes. So fun. when Andrew announced that he was doing Looking, I got very, very excited. And I love it, and I watched it, but there's something very passive about season one. And I kept longing for something a little more exciting, and you were it in season two. Mm, thank you. So it's like they can't not keep this on forever. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get cast in Looking? Uh, looking was actually a unique experience for me because I had initially sent some messages. Uh, well, at first my friend was like, are you watching Looking? It's fantastic. And I wasn't really sold on it yet. Because I just felt like I see a lack of representation for bigger bearish men in LGBT cinema and in television in general. Mm -hmm. um, I never really felt like I saw myself on screen. So I was like a little hesitant at first. I was like, oh, well, one of them has a beard, you know, like kind of thing. Right. And then my friend Laurie Malkin, who's a casting director in New York, was like, well, why don't you just be the guy on it? And I'm like, well, you know, it doesn't work like that or I'd be on everything. You <laughs> <Right>? know? <laughs> so... I looked up the casting director in a little bit of like Make Your Own Destiny and saw that she was the casting director, Carmen Cuba, that discovered me for my first film, Bully, and ironically in a gay club and cast me as straight. So there's a person who definitely has an open mind. So right. I sent her um, some photos of, of myself that I had recently taken and was like, hey, if you ever need a sexy bear. And she's like, well, you never know. And then when I came out in that letter to my character, Damien, it went crazy viral. Just, you know, it was number one trending topic on everything for like days. And she sent the letter to them where I also mentioned her. And they were like, this is so funny because we were just thinking about a character like this. And my name had already kind of come up and it just seemed like the perfect fit. And Michael Lennon, the creator of the series, was talking about it on a show once and was telling me that usually there's some sort of objection in a creative room about the character or the actor or everything. But everyone just went with it. And it seemed like Eddie Bear was destined to be this character that I was supposed to portray. So, Well, I love that as a person of size. 
as I am, of all <laughs> my radio you, you look so svelte. You're like a gazelle. In it's my hard radio to tell. It's hide in the corner. <laughs> I have the waistline for radio. <laughs> Maybe it's because you're wearing all black. I can't really. Right. Your character was not only HIV positive, he was very life positive. Yeah. I mean, you got naked a lot. I did. <laughs> well, I knew the importance in that. I mean, I'm not a person who grew up very confident in my body. I mean, I was the little kid who lied about having an appendix scar, so I got to wear my T-shirt in the pool at camp, you know? Right. And then the liberation that was expressed to me within letters and emails that I'd gotten from fans of Mean Girls that they were able to see themselves on screen, saying that, like, in eighth grade was really rough, but then Mean Girls came out, and I joined. I got into my freshman year of high school, and the popular girls were like, you're like Damien, come sit with me. Right. And I knew that there was power in that and seeing different male body forms on screen. So when they told me I was going to be naked and not only naked, but be sexy and not only be sexy, but be pursued regardless of my um, HIV status, I knew that it was a really progressive role that would make a lot of waves and upset a lot of people and get people talking about different body shapes and about seeing different people on screen and maybe inspire some people to like big guys in the future. That's right. And I was just like, you know what? Like, I'll just boy Lena Dunham it and let it all hang out and not really give a shit. <laughs> you know, I, I love that in a show with Jonathan Goff and, and Murray. I mean, you've got some really attractive men on that show. Yeah. You ended up being the, the sexiest one. Well, hey, look at that. Yes. You, <laughs> what, Steve, well, Daniel, don't touch. Well, Daniel, don't is, touch. Daniel is sexy, honey. He's, he's breaking boundaries left and right. Well, huh? I'll tell you, that was something that really annoyed me is I've never had a, like, I never had a problem dating or like finding a man or finding sex or anything like that. But all my characters did. You know, all the people who I was reading or playing were like, will you go out with me? <laughs> maybe we'll kiss one day or maybe not. And like, you know, then I get to play this guy who's just like so comfortable in his own skin, again, regardless of, HIV, regardless of HIV status and everything else. And I thought that that was a beautiful thing, which led to me being an ambassador for the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So now That's I'm like an cool. official ambassador for Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, um, which you should definitely look up. Do you have a sash? Um, no, but I often wear a red ribbon, which is not a fashion statement. I think that, um, you know, uh, Michael Lennon and Andrew Haig wanted to create a character that was HIV positive, that was living healthy with HIV uh-huh. and living a full life and still being pursued and capable of love like all these people are. And it wasn't being showed on screen. And at the time, Glad let me know. We sat down with a meeting with Glad because they uh, threw a benefit for our finale party for ETAF. And they let me know that at the time I was the only HIV positive character on television in years. Yeah. That's right. Which I think is insane because, um, you know, being from an underrepresented group of people, the bigger size, different body shape, male, I know what it feels like to be represented on screen. It's a validation. It's almost like a vampire when you look in the mirror and don't see yourself. <laughs> right. You know, do you, you know, do I in fact exist? And I feel like um, the letters that I've gotten from mixed status couples and HIV positive bears even that are just like it's so nice to see myself portrayed on a way on screen where it wasn't tragic or – um, sad or, or sad. Or, it was or, a happy, yeah. sweet love story. And I think that that was really groundbreaking. And um, along with GLAD and ETAF, I have partnered on this initiative to ask um, Hollywood to please create more characters that are um, telling different stories of different um, LGBT, um, LGBT uh, HIV positive people and let them you know, have their stories be told because I think it helped a lot of people to see what it was like to be in a mixed status couple and take prep and learn the the problems that might arise from that or the fears and then also how you can overcome them and, and see like a hopeful story. So... Oh my goodness! If I could add to that real quick, I mean, yeah, no, <laughs> we all listen to you talk, so talk. We're all, <laughs> we're all mesmerized. I'm like, what? We well, love here's you. Something, this Say is, more. 
this is what? something that's really interesting, okay? So we all saw the stories in the mid-80s to mid-90s of um, acceptance and tolerance of HIV-positive people on screen. Right. And that led to uh, new infections going down steadily every year as we were seeing more of those stories on our, you know, the very special episode of Golden Girls or what have you. <laughs> right. Like, so we all got to see that. But then somewhere around the mid-90s, it didn't become a hot-button topic anymore. We explored other LGBT issues like alternative families. And now, you know, there's a huge movement in, in seeing trans stories, which is right. wonderful. But we can't forget the story of the HIV-positive people because once they started they started reducing the amount of roles that we saw on television, new infections started rising again. Exactly. And now they're at an all-time high with younger people especially and other communities um, like African-American women and bisexual men, which is like, you know, the television unicorn that you never yeah. see, you know? And it's like, so we really need to start telling these stories again to start get the message out there to sort of, you know, bring the rates back down because storytelling is very powerful. Well, in our final few minutes, I, I want to go back to looking and what happened with the cancellation or the non-renewal. Sure. T- Hello. <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> Who's that? Don't talk about that. Well, looking has been canceled, but HBO has agreed to let us create a film in order to, uh, you know, talk about, wrap up our storylines and let everyone and see where, where everyone ends up. And, you know, often that doesn't happen. So that's a very nice thing. I'm upset that it was canceled, but we had sort of dismal ratings at certain points, but I also feel like we're in a very weird time slot. I mean, up against the Oscars and whatnot. Yeah. I have to say, only in the last couple of weeks have I heard all this good stuff about looking, so it's really disappointing to me that it sort of hasn't gotten that chance to get Well, they hardly action. ever give shows a chance anymore. They well, you Sunday's know, they, a really t- t- yeah. tough yeah, night. I, we I, played against I, the I Golden Globes, we played against the Oscars, we played against the Grammys, we play, you know, and then we were off for the Super Bowl. Like, you should see... <laughs> which it, made no sense to me. I should actually see of Emma Amazon and Netflix will pick you guys up. Well, you know, we'll see what the ratings are on the movie. And perhaps mm. if fans really do love it, you know, there's this whole petition and everything else. Yeah, and everybody should just it. watch the movie. And bring something else. What are you working on next? Are you working on any other yes, projects? I'm going to be stuff? a series regular on a new ABC Family show uh, called Recovery Road, where um, I play a choreographer who quit, co- who quit cocaine and gained a little weight and has to deal with the, the, the issues that arise with that. Uh-huh. And um, I'm really excited about that show. It's written by Bert V. Royal, who wrote Easy A, who was my college roommate. Nice. And Karen D. Consetto, who's my friend for years, who played Snooky in Jersey Shoresicle. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a family affair. We're really excited to make this uh, really cool, progressive show, pushing the limits of ABC Family and uh, telling a lot of great stories. We have to have you back to talk about that. Absolutely. No, I'm back. I'm never going to leave, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, still to come, Steve chats with openly gay professional soccer player Robbie Rogers from the LA Galaxy. And Abby's interview with Kate Kindle, the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. <laughs> Don't go away. We'll be right back. A chorus line coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The 1975 musical hit A Chorus Line was created by Michael Bennett. He crafted the musical from hundreds of hours of taped sessions with Broadway dancers. Ultimately, the musical with 19 main characters told the story of a dancer's life on Broadway. It debuted off-Broadway in May 1975 and moved to the Schubert Theater opening on Broadway on July 25, 1975. It would close on April 28, 1990 after 6,137 performances and at the time was the longest-running Broadway show ever. It won nine Tony Awards and in 1976, a Pulitzer Prize for drama. Michael Bennett also left his mark on such shows as Company, Follies, and Dreamgirls. In 1987, Bennett's light dimmed when he died of AIDS-related lymphoma at age 44, with a memorial service at the Schubert Theater. 
Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, George A. Ruther. Hello, I'm Robbie Rogers from Los Angeles Galaxy, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. On KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I am Steve Pride. And I'm Miss Barbecue. And I'm Abby Dees. And the time is now 7.31. Which means it's time for a soccer player, don't you think? Heck yeah, it is. One of my favorite guests was a soccer player. I had to do so much research to find out what that involved. There's a ball, apparently. Ooh. They kick it. I, and I a don't goal. Know. And there's like an American one and another is. one. Well, and his name is Robbie Rogers. Let's get right to it. Yes. Robbie Rogers knows better than most that keeping secrets can crush you. For much of his life, Robbie lived in paralyzing fear that sharing his big secret would cost him his career as a professional soccer player. So he never told anyone what was destroying his soul, both on and off the field. But in February 2013, Robbie came out as gay, and life just got better. My name is Robbie Rogers from the Los Angeles Galaxy. I come from a big family, a lot of love. We always had a lot of fun and we're out playing sports and messing around. But then also I come from a very conservative Catholic family that I think at the time was pretty close-minded and conservative in ways I don't think are that healthy for especially young kids. But it's also what's made me who I am and obviously I've gone through all this for a reason and has, I think, built a lot of character. So it was a difficult but also fun and exciting childhood. You made a lot of assumptions about how people would react to your big secret. Yeah, that was being raised in the Catholic Church, being raised in the sports world where there are no out gay people in either. You know, even to now, I think there's, you know, a few athletes and I don't know really any out gay Catholics. But certain people have reached out to me that are, you know, still religious people and I'm still a religious person, but I didn't grow up with any really gay role models. So I assumed that that wasn't for me and that I couldn't be, you know, gay. How old are you? I'm 27. So you went to the 2008 Olympics when you were 21. The Olympics was one of the best moments of my career. It was in Beijing. I had so much fun. It's not that you're just part of the U.S. soccer team. You're part of the whole U.S. Olympic team. And you get to walk out next to Kobe Bryant and guys like that. And then you get out into the stadium and you're next to guys like Roger Federer or, uh, you know, just different amazing athletes that are just so talented. So it was a great experience. Obviously would have been an even more special experience, I think, if I was out and been able to experience like that. I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but Grinder I think, like, shut down during the London Olympics, which just shows, like, how many actually gay athletes there are. I thought that was kind of funny. You played for Leeds United in the U.K., where soccer or football, has a reputation for being hyper-masculine and not very tolerant. I didn't necessarily know that the locker room and the sports culture in England was going to be so homophobic, but the people there aren't necessarily homophobic. It's that weird pack mentality, that sports mentality. When they all get together, it becomes very homophobic. But they're the same guys that called me right after I came out to support me. So I didn't know what I was kind of getting myself into, I guess. But, I mean, I don't regret it. I was really happy to move to England and play there and then eventually move to London, and that's where I kind of found myself. So when you heard someone say faggot, what went through your mind? I just would kind of cringe and get almost like a cramp feeling in my stomach and thought that this isn't a place for me if I want to be a gay man. People ask, when did you first realize you were gay? 
I knew I was gay from a very young age because I remember hearing that word when I was really young, like faggot or whatever, and just being really hurt by it and not really knowing for sure if I was gay or not, but I think I had a feeling or I must have known because it really just affected me. I read your memoir, Coming Out to Play, and was surprised you didn't sleep with anyone until after you came out. In fact, your closet door wasn't even open to crushes. I was just so closeted and so afraid of that side that I just like was so turned off by that. And if I had a, saw a guy looking at on TV or, I mean, I never picked up any kind of magazine that had gay men in it. I just was like so closeted that I stayed away from that and didn't allow myself to have that kind of stuff. I remember one of the first times seeing a gay man on TV was a Dawson's Creek episode. I was like, oh, wow, like this exists and I've seen it. It's on TV and, and the rest of the world probably saw it and it just made me think a little bit. Tell me about your big coming out in 2013. I was sitting in my apartment in London, my bed actually, and I was just writing like this like coming out letter thinking like, you know, I probably won't ever post this. So I, I left it on my desktop for about two months and it was I think February 15th that I was sitting with my friend in my apartment and I said to him like, you think I should come out to like the public? Should I post it on Twitter? Should I do something or should I just leave it? And he kind of I think was like sick of me at that point. He's like, look, either do it or don't do it. But like you just got to kind of get over it and move on. And I was like, well, I wrote this. Like, what do you think? So I let him read it. And he was brought to tears by it. And I was like, whoa. He's one of those buddies that, like, is always just kind of bantering with me and making fun of me. And he's like, you know, you should post this. So we were just sitting there. I posted it very spontaneously and closed my laptop. I turned off my phone. And I uh, felt amazing. And I was out. How many Twitter I know, followers it weird? did you I, guess, like, I, I think I had, like, 60 or 70,000 Twitter followers at that moment before I came out. Was the fallout what you expected? I had so many assumptions just because of what I heard in the locker room again and how I was raised, but it was the complete opposite. For the most part, I would say 95% of people just sent me either messages on Twitter or to my uh, website just supporting me and encouraging me. And a lot of them were just like, don't retire, like continue to play. And I felt like I need to retire for a few months. But um, it was just the exact opposite of, of what I expected. A few other athletes have come out after they retired. You came out, then retired, and then came back to pro soccer. Why? It was kind of a combination. It was, of course, I missed it a bit. But when I first came out, I had all these people, you need to keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. And I wanted to be like, hey, everyone else, just like, just shut up. I need to take some time myself. Like, it was tough enough for me to come out. But as more, especially younger people were encouraging me and telling me what they were doing. And, and when I went to that Nike event, and it was like a Glisten Nike event where kids were just so encouraged and confident and, and wanted to make a difference and would seriously die to have a platform that I have to make a change and to just be myself and be a soccer player and to be a symbol in the field by just kicking a soccer ball around. It's when I realized that, I think, and of course, missing soccer, I was like, you know, I, I need to go back at least for this year and, and be present and be out and participate in, in the sports world and try to make a difference. And when I eventually had some time and found the courage to do that, then, you know, I obviously did and have had a lot of support. Was coming back hard? It was very, very difficult for me. I think a lot of people expected, oh, he's out, he's playing soccer again, he must be really happy and he's going to play well and all that stuff. And actually... Coming out was very emotional for me and then going back pretty quickly and throwing myself back into the locker room where I know I'm the only out gay person, even though your teammates are very supportive, you still have to come to terms with yourself and that, okay, I am the only gay one here, but I'm still one of the teammates. 
And these guys are supporting me. And now I just need to help my team win and work my butt off. And I did this for a very selfish reason, to just be happy. And I wanted to just be out. But I'm very happy that the story has been used so that people feel like they can do the same. These guys now can be out in college and enjoying their youth and playing professional sports or playing college sports and, and just being themselves. What's the biggest misconception about Robbie Rogers? It's been such a journey and struggle for me. And being in the locker room with a bunch of straight men where you work every day and that world is supposed to be so straight and to be a gay man in it is still it's difficult. You know, you want sometimes to have another gay person you work with or that you're traveling with just so to talk about what's going on in WeHo or to to talk about different things that straight men might not necessarily be talking about. So I think people might think that it's been a little easier for me than it has. This has been a conversation with pro soccer player Robbie Rogers. His memoir is called Coming Out to Play. And you can also find more information at RobbieRogers.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Give me freedom, give me fire. Give me reason, take me higher. See the champion, take the field down. Unify us, make us feel proud. In the streets, our heads are lifting. That was amazing. I had to Google Robbie Rogers to look him up to see who you were looking at. You got to look at a handsome man, honey. He's also a model and a fashionista. Well, well, he has a clothing line. Oh, my goodness. Well, well, well he said he's so brave about, about retiring and going back to what you love. I think I think that's such an inspiring and story. And it wasn't easy. I'm very inspired by the fact that he did it for the kids and for the movement because yeah. it is not easy once you stop training yeah. to get back into shape to become a professional soccer player, especially mm-hmm. when you're no longer that young. He's in his 20s. Yeah, so he's like over the hill. And I got to say, just listening to that and listening to our guest prior to that, it's really such a reminder that you can make a difference. You can be an activist by doing your thing. Yeah. There's not one way to do it. Yeah. And being happy and just having that natural joy in doing what you love to and do. And being yourself. Um, and speaking of people who are doing some great stuff, I happen to have... NCLR, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, at my house about two weeks ago for a fundraiser. And oh, Winslow so and I were there. You were there. You showed up. It was fabulous. And one of the highlights of it was that just before, while we were getting ready and we were, you know, setting tables and things, I stole the executive director, Kate Kendall, away for a great conversation. And so here it is. My name is Kate Kendall. I'm executive director at the National Center for Lesbian Rights. We are a legal and policy advocacy organization. We're fighting for the full human rights for all LGBT people in this country. Kate, I want to talk to you about this moment in LGBT rights. So is this the big one? This moment is a pinnacle of something. Okay. (laughs) It's not a finish line, but I definitely think we are at an undeniable tipping point. Certainly in my 20 plus years of advocacy, I have never seen a coalescence of so many issues, popular culture, public opinion, legal gains, policy gains, and then to be on the verge of closing the chapter on marriage, a huge important civil rights fight for our movement. It was unimaginable even just two or three years ago. I still have to kind of pinch myself. Tell me about what's happening on April 28th. On April 28th, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear oral argument in the four marriage cases that they have consolidated from the states of Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan, and Tennessee. NCLR is involved in the Tennessee case. And that will be an argument that will decide two fundamental questions. 
is the U.S. Constitution violated by excluding same-sex couples from the freedom to marry? And is it a violation of the U.S. Constitution to not have all states recognize marriages if they are performed in other states? Those are the two questions the court is going to be hearing. Once those questions are decided, and we should have a ruling in June, we believe that the issue of marriage will be finally determined by the U.S. Supreme Court, and we hope and believe that every couple, no matter where you live, will be able to marry. Do you anticipate a way that the court could kind of split the baby? People talk about all sorts of ways they think this might come out, that maybe what the court could do is they could say no state can refuse to recognize marriage from another state, but the state itself doesn't have to perform marriages. For example, they could answer question one, in the negative, saying the Constitution is not violated by excluding same-sex couples from the overall right to marry, and then answer question two in our favor, saying you have to recognize a marriage if a couple got married elsewhere. I do not think that makes any intellectual or moral sense in terms of the fundamental issue. If it is a violation of the 14th Amendment for a state to not recognize your marriage that was contracted just over the state line in the neighboring state, It simply doesn't hold legal analysis through any sort of scrutiny to then say the state you live in doesn't have to marry you. I think both questions are going to be resolved in favor of marriage equality nationwide. And I don't see the court yet again dodging the issue and waiting for yet another day where they'll have to eventually decide the question. It keeps coming back. It'll come back again. And they know that. I think they want to just get it done. When I read the stories of the plaintiffs, they were, you know, I don't want to sound cliche, but they were sort of true Americans in that sense that they had military service. They had families. It was kind of everything we think of when you think of sort of the ideal American family. Well, what you really want when you present these plaintiffs forward, and it's not that, you know, we're looking for people who are perfect. We want people who have lived a normal life with all its ups and downs and all its complications. But you want the story presented to really illustrate how ludicrous it is to not have this couple's marriage recognized in their home state. So if they have some health complications or they have children, I mean, one of our our, our lesbian couple gave birth in the midst of the uh, proceedings, the legal proceedings. And so it's a, it's a perfect example for anyone to read and say, well, this is absurd that their marriage is not recognized. So you want plaintiffs who can tell a story that help to illustrate the inanity of the law you're trying to take down. Their stories are compelling. I recommend anybody go to the NCLR website and just look at the stories. They just seem like great people. Look, the story in all these cases is that it's the plaintiffs who are willing to stand up, be counted, risk their personal life, risk their privacy, and be super courageous. So they're the heroes. Absolutely. For the people that are not law wonks, kind of like me, How is this case going to be different than, say, the Windsor case from 2013? We've had a lot of successes, and we've had successes at the Supreme Court on the federal level and the circuit courts. What's different about this? Why is this the one? Well, the Windsor case was clearly a building block to this case. The Windsor case challenged the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. The Defense of Marriage Act allowed the federal government to not recognize marriages performed in a couple's home state. So that question was presented before the court in 2013. And I think that question struck everyone as a true quintessential denial of equal protection of the laws. If equal protection of the laws means anything, 
it must mean that you will have the same right security protection and benefit as the couple living next door to you by your federal government. And yet, with DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, of course, signed by President Clinton, passed obviously many years ago, it feels like a lifetime ago at this point, we did not have our marriages recognized by the federal government. Now, now you're talking serious benefits, serious rights, serious protection, serious safety net advantages from the federal government. And I think the court rightly looked at the Defense of Marriage Act and truly believed that it was that quintessential denial of equal protection. It was explicit. And you look at Edie Windsor, who could not have been a more compelling plaintiff, and the fact that she was saddled with a several hundred thousand dollar tax burden, whereas if she had been married to a man rather than Thea, she would never have had a tax burden because they would have been treated as a married couple. That story, I think, resonated with everyone except the most hardened homophobes. And it was a very good step on the path to winning full marriage for the court to look at that and say, this is what it really means to exclude same-sex couples from being treated equally in this country. It means things like this, and this is not in the tradition of this country. So they struck down DOMA, and now what's left is what happens to us at the state level. We have to get rid of the state domas. We have to get rid of states that don't recognize our marriages. And we need the court once and for all to say, no matter who you are, you're able to marry the person that you love. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Kate Kendall, the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, about this pivotal moment in the fight for LGBT equality. Do you think that we would be here with the odds pretty much in our favor if that case hadn't been preceding it? I think it makes it much easier for the court to have had a window on what it is to be a same-sex couple in this country through the Windsor case. I think that's an easier case because the denial just seems so odious. And it's almost as if that's your gateway (laughs) to getting rid of all discrimination in marriage. You start with the federal government refusing to recognize already married couples. Once you do that, the next step is, well, make sure that all couples can marry. That is a bigger step. So I do think it was a good interim step for the court to take. If we had never had a DOMA and we just had states not recognizing our marriages, if we hadn't had Windsor, could we still win marriage? You know, it's hard to tell, but there's no doubt that it helped us to get to a place where the rest of the country and I think the Supreme Court is ready to decide this issue once and for all. And I can't help but notice that we as a community and our advocates and sort of proxies and people like you are also being willing to just get down to the essential argument. We seemed like we were sort of nibbling around the outsides a little bit, and that strategically made sense. But now we're just going to the main question. This is discrimination. Yeah, we're going to the heart of it. And, you know, your question also, an observation, also brings up that, you know, this has been sort of a little bit circuitous, especially, you know, when we first started doing marriage fights, we were all talking about rights and benefits. And we were sort of missing the core of winning hearts and minds because no one gets married you know no guy goes down on his knee to propose to benefits to say oh yeah let's have tax break honey (laughs) no I mean I love you I want to spend my life with you but we weren't sure if that argument would work we wanted to appeal to people's head rather than their heart which you can't really do on this issue so 
There was really a shift in messaging based on seeing some of the wins we were having in courts where we were talking about the lives of same-sex couples. We were illustrating who these people were, and we were finding we were winning in mm-hmm. front of judges. And we thought, well, gosh, we should take those same arguments. And then there was some very good messaging done, some very good research done, and it all showed that we marry for the same reason everybody else does, which we knew, but we need to tell people that. That's the messaging that will win. So. We've won very quickly at a much more accelerated level than I thought we were going to, but we had some fits and starts along the way. As you've watched this, have you noticed the arguments evolving on the other side? Oh, gosh, yeah. The other side has also understood that they can't win by demonizing LGBT people because we are everywhere and we are in every family. And because LGBT people, you know, the sort of upside of being able to pass (laughs) is that we can be in families or in a workplace or in a neighborhood or in a church community for a very long time without anyone actually knowing that we're LGBT. And then we're miserable, but we're doing it. And it's, and you know, it's wrong for all sorts of reasons that we would have to hide or cover or whatever. But then when we come out, then people already love and care for us. And now they have to reconcile their feelings. You know, the downside of passing is that it, create some complacency and it fails to radicalize people because you just kind of want to keep your head down but the other side has recognized that they can't just demonize us because we are everywhere and we are in people's families and so now what they're saying and the argument that they're using and this will be an argument we will be fighting for several years hence is that okay well fine let them marry but If my religious belief finds that reprehensible, I want to be able to deny them services or an apartment or a job, and that's what we have to stop. And how do we stop it? Well, we're trying to stop it right now. In some states, we've been successful by just putting out the messaging that this is just plain and simple discrimination, and bigotry will mutate. And just because it's mutated with a religious mask or a religious covering does not mean it's still not prejudice and bigotry. It's also been helpful to have people of faith and LGBT people of faith say, wait a minute, there's nothing about religion that endorses discrimination. You can believe whatever you want, including that LGBT people are wrong and an abomination or whatever terminology you want to use. But to deny them benefits in civic life is offensive to core principles in this country. We're not the Taliban. We're not a theocracy. And in civic life, people should be able to participate and be free from discrimination. That's been the history of this country. And we're going to go back and forth on that. And we may win some in some states. We may lose some. There may be some religious entitlements that people are able to get. Civil rights struggles are a little bit messy, and it's going to be messy until we resolve this issue for sure. I've always said civil rights are a bitch. (laughs) I mean, that's sort of my personal motto. They are hard won. They are painful to have. They are painful to support sometimes. That is the price that we pay for living in a society based on rights. Yeah, I've said before, it's why they call it a civil rights struggle, not a civil rights play date. (laughs) And, you know, we're not exceptional. We're going to have to go through the same sort of ups and downs that every other civil rights struggle has gone through. It's, I think, a somewhat entitled or elitist view to think that somehow we should be able to skip over all the other sort of back and forth that goes on in civil rights struggles. Once we win marriage, we will still have to fight not only to push back against overbroad religious entitlements and licenses to discriminate based on religion, but also to make sure that everyone in our community is protected and everyone won't be just by winning marriage. This is Abby Dees, and I've been talking with Kate Kendall, the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. 
On April 28th, NCLR will be asking the Supreme Court to rule definitively that marriage equality is the law of the land. To stay up to date on this and more, you can go to nclrights.org. Well, that was the tip of the iceberg of my conversation with Kate. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about what happens after marriage. That was which is amazing. Great stuff. That was amazing. Just, 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 just. Very good. That the passion that we still have for fighting our rights, just, you know, it's not over. Oh, it's not. It's, it's just not beginning over. in a lot of ways. Well, unfortunately, the show is over tonight. That's uh-huh. the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage. Take Tim Pelicos by the hand and exit to the far, far left of the tram's forward motion. And our thanks tonight to director Michelle Marie Gilkison, coordinating producer Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. Also holding down the fort in the master control room is Wenzel Jones and Mac McLaughlin. We love you guys. Follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted by noon every Tuesday. Well, the band Little Big Town has been on the receiving end of an actual boycott going on in country radio. Their latest song, Girl Crush, which is about a man's ex-girlfriend wishing she was the woman he was currently with, has had its lyrics wildly misinterpreted, and the band has been accused of... You guessed it, promoting a gay agenda. Gay agenda. We have no problem here at IMRU with a gay agenda, real or imagined. From Little Big Town, here's Girl Crush. (laughs) Good night. I got a girl crush. Hate to admit it, but I got a heart rush. It's slowing down. I got it. Want everything she has That smiling and midnight laugh She's giving you now I want to taste her lips Yeah, cause they taste like you I want to drown myself In a bottle of her perfume I want her long blonde hair I want her magic touch Yeah, cause maybe then You'd want me just as much I got a girl crush I got a girl crush
Yeah.